0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor-at-large at at The Washington Post. And my first guest this morning is Jackie Alamany, congressional correspondent for The Post and the author of Early 202, The Post's political newsletter. Good morning, Jackie.
2: Hey, Michael, how are
1: you? I'm well, thanks. Last night, a House Select Committee released its third round of subpoenas targeting organizers of the January 6th rally that led to the insurrection at the Capitol earlier this year. From what you can tell, what is the committee looking for and what do they want to find out?
2: Yeah, Michael, there's been no shortage of news coming out of Capitol Hill this week. On top of all the debt ceiling fracas, the January 6th committee has been busy at work. They released their third round of subpoenas yesterday, targeting some of the lead organizers behind the Stop Steal rally um, that, preceded the violent insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th that included lesser-known names like Ali Alexander, the far-right provocateur and organizer of Stop the Steal, along with Nathan Martin whose name um, was inexplicably, according to him, on the permits applying for the event space on the Capitol, um, listed uh, his email, his number, and his contact as a representative of the One Nation Under God, um, which is uh, somehow related to Stop the Seal, although those ties are still very unclear. And the third um, subpoena went to the Stop the Seal LLC, which Uh, as far as we know at the moment, was created by a lawyer who represents Ali Alexander Baron Coleman out of Alabama. Um, Although we have had a challenging time reaching um, some of these people for comment, although Nathan Martin declined to comment to the Post yesterday, saying he might have more to say going forward. Um, But these are subpoenas that have come after a, a raft of higher profile subpoenas of people who were fundraisers and organizers for the Stop the Steal rally last week that included 11 different people who have closer ties to Trump world. Um, People like Maggie Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney, Trump's former chief of staff's niece, um, and uh, various other people who have been in involved in sort of advanced work as it relates to former President Trump. And then the week before that, there was Cash Patel, Mark Meadows, uh, Dan Scavino, and Steve Bannon, who were subpoenaed. And the deadline for whether or not they would comply with the subpoenas was yesterday as well. Um, and so we found out that the, pre- the former president has directed them not to comply and cooperate with the January 6th committee. But it is unclear what their response was ultimately. That's something that we're tracking down today.
1: One of the more sensitive issues facing the House uh, committee is how far and how fast to push fellow members of Congress on their role. Uh, In a since-deleted video, uh, Alexander, uh, one of the organizers, um, vowed to put maximum pressure on Congress uh, and had implied that there were at least three GOP lawmakers who were uh, part of the effort. Is there any sense that the committee is looking at those three lawmakers? Do we know who they are and what do we expect to happen there, if anything?
2: Yeah. So we've known from the start here that the committee has been eyeing some of the Republican lawmakers who have publicly and uh, privately had communication with President Trump on January 6th um, and also who we know have been in touch and had previously been in touch with some of these Stop the Steal organizers, including Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, uh, and Mo Brooks from Alabama. Um, But, you know, one of the things that we've sort of learned from this committee is some of the names that have not come out in these subpoenas. Um, We've been watching them closely to figure out whether or not they've been quietly cooperating with the select committee. We have yet to nail down uh, or hear from the committee at all with regards to whether or not they are in touch with these lawmakers. But um, from again, from from the start, there has been an interest in getting in touch with people, not just those, those three from Arizona and Alabama, but also people like uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, um, people, again, who were on the phone and uh, publicly acknowledged that they were in communication with President Trump throughout the day, uh, throughout the insurrection, to get a better sense of, uh, at least in the view of committee members of what those communications were like, what was discussed. Um, That's why you saw the committee uh, file a records request with the National Archives asking for these documents uh, between the White House and um, whoever really the president communicated with that day, but uh, particularly lawmakers or people in the Pentagon, um, especially as it relates to abuses of emergency powers, whether they're looking for things like, did Trump seek to invoke the Insurrection Act? Did that come up in any emails? Did that come up in any conversations? Um, but, you know, as of yesterday, at least, we are unsure um, if those documents have made it to the the congressional committee, the select committee, um, yet, uh, but um, again, something we are tracking very closely here.
1: Uh, 48 hours ago, Jackie, it seemed like Congress was uh, ready to take uh, the U.S. government and its uh, a credit around the world right to the brink, uh, and clearly something has changed. What happened?
2: Yeah, uh, in a funny turn of events, um, depending on who you talk to, either Mitch McConnell caved or Democrats came to an agreement and really kicked the can down the road to December as the Senate voted 50 to 48 to raise the country's debt ceiling. But that only goes through early December. So it spares Washington from financial catastrophe for right now. Um, But this is something that's going to have to be litigated yet again and actually could be potentially even more devastating to the US economy um, as the debt ceiling deadline in December is now going to be on the same Deadline for uh, funding the federal government because that's when that runs out as well. Um, so this is uh, definitely a, a, a live story. We know that Democrats really did not want to do this through reconciliation. They're still insisting that, but I think what this process and and what yesterday's vote showed was Republicans sort of calling bluff on Repub- on Democrats' excuse that they didn't have enough time to do this through reconciliation because now they've got a whole month. Um, but, you know, Democrats would say they called bluff on Mitch McConnell, uh, Chuck Schumer taking a victory lap last night, basically, essentially saying that Republicans capitulated to Democrats in this stare down.
1: Jackie, did you see in the week since uh, last week's near-death experience, has there been any progress on uh, among Democrats in reaching agreement on either the size of that eventual reconciliation bill uh, that you can see? Has there been any progress Yeah, so
2: that's... That's something that has been concurrently um, being negotiated with Democratic lawmakers as they were scrambling to stave off default and financial catastrophe. Um, We know that Senator Joe Manchin, who has been really integral uh, to this process, or I guess maybe some progressives would not describe him as integral, but Perhaps more of an impediment, as him and Kristen Sinema have been the holdup for this 3.5 trillion dollar package. We know that it's potential; it's most likely this final number on reconciliation is most likely going to come down, um, probably something closer to 2.1 between 1.5 trillion and 2.1 trillion is what we heard from Joe Biden this week. Uh, but what exactly those details look like is very much um, a work in progress. It's something that lawmakers are, are hashing out. Uh, Day in and and day out, as they realize that it's important for this to now probably get done before they have to deal with the debt ceiling because they do not ultimately want to have to do the debt ceiling through reconciliation and put a giant trillion dollar number on the final bill.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Jackie, for sharing uh, the updates. I look forward to talking with you about this in the future. That was Jackie Alamani, congressional correspondent for the Post, you bet, and the author of our. Early 202 Morning Political Newsletter. Uh, I wanna continue uh, uh, a look at all these developments with our opinions columnists and joining us now uh, on the opinion side of the post, uh, deputy editorial page editor Ruth Marcus and columnist Jennifer Rubin. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, Jen.
0: Good morning.
1: Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. All right, Ruth, uh, we gotta start with you because I just, uh, for sometime in the last, I don't know, 12 hours a Senate uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, issued a report uh, with some new details about uh, what was going on inside the trump administration in the final hours as they tried to uh, wire the results of the of the 2020 election uh, tell us what we've learned so far this morning if you can
0: So what we've learned are new details, some juicy, some amusing, some chilling, about the slow motion coup that was going on in the government before the real-time coup um, that was uh, attempted to be executed on January 6th. And what we really learned are details about uh, Jeffrey Clark, this previously obscure uh, Justice Department official, who was trying to basically oust Jeffrey Rosen, the acting Attorney General, and and uh, so that he could help President Trump use the Justice Department as a mechanism to overturn the election. I'm going to give you two quickie things. One is the magnificent scene buried in the. Uh, interview transcript that I poured through yesterday, which is they're heading over to the White House for a last minute meeting on January 3rd, Sunday evening uh, with the president to see which one he's going to pick. And Rosen, of course, as attorney general has a motorcade, Clark asks him for a lift and Rosen says, it might've been ungracious of me, but I declined. Trump opens, that's the funny part. The chilling part is Trump opens the meeting with the statement Well, one thing we know about you, Rosen, is you're not gonna help overturn the election. You're not gonna do anything to help overturn the election. This is an unbelievable thing to be said by a president to an acting attorney general in the Oval Office. And we really need to learn more about this. In particular, we need to learn Uh, from Jeffrey Clark under oath. He has not been subpoenaed by the January 6th commission. He has not been subpoenaed because they don't have the power to do it by the Senate Judiciary Committee. We need his
1: testimony. Jen Rubin, uh, it's been about six months since that House Select Committee has been put into place. They've had one hearing. Are you surprised that they haven't had more or are you hearing that uh, they're moving with the dispatch that's required?
3: I think they're doing what you would expect of a committee, which is um, finding out uh, the data. They have subpoenas out for documents. They have subpoenas out for witnesses. And, you know, the old adage that a lawyer never asks a question he doesn't know the answer to is very true of hearings. So I think um, what is uh, heartening for those of us who really want to get to the bottom of this is the scope of their investigation. And they clearly understand that January 6th was not an isolated event. This was the last chapter, not the first, um, in a whole series of actions that really were an attempt to overthrow the election and to stage a coup. So I think they are broadening their search. They're working their way up from the insurrectionists and down from the president. Um, And I'm rather heartened, actually, uh, with the scope. Now, as you said earlier, um, some of these witnesses on instruction from the president um, are apparently not going to respond to the subpoenas. Um, We're going to now have a fight in court over uh, whether those people are in contempt or not. Um, There really is not an executive privilege that a former president can claim. So it's going to be interesting to see what arguments, if any, um, they present to a court and whether these people, frankly, are willing to pay either a civil fine or even see jail time if they're going to follow Trump's and Trump's lawyers' suggestions.
1: Uh, Ruth, speaking of the court, you wrote a column last week that the U.S. Supreme Court was facing a crisis of legitimacy. That is not something we expect court watchers like yourself uh, to write, uh, much less, uh, you know, uh, perhaps return to. What's going on?
0: Well, what's going on um, is they've got votes to spare uh, on the conservative side. So six justices means that each one of them can take his or her Uh, ideological hobby horse, whether that's executive power or religious freedom or uh, abortion rights or opposing abortion rights, as it were, and, and take that and run with it. And we've just seen this conservative majority teeing up a term where abortion and the future of Roe is on the table, where the scope of gun rights and the ability to impose reasonable gun regulations is on the table, where affirmative action in higher education may well be on the table, and where you see justice after justice uh, going out and saying in the um, amazing words of the newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett, um, that they're not a bunch of partisan hacks. Uh, that They may not be a bunch of partisan hacks, but they're doing a lot of things that have a lot of people uh, across the ideological spectrum uh, concerned that they're just using their muscle to get what they want.
1: Jen, you probably saw in Ruth's column that the Supreme Court's polls, its approval ratings, have pretty much been cut in half uh, over the last couple of years. Um, We don't think of the Supreme Court being subject to public approval, and yet uh, it clearly is facing a declining approval ratings. Uh, uh, Is that something we want the justices to care about or not?
3: Well, whether we want to or not, they do care about. And we've seen this remarkable parade of justices, uh, including Justice Breyer, who just wrote a book, Um, Justice Thomas, Justice Coney Barrett, um, Justice uh, Alito come out with these very defensive, uh, prickly, remarks in public places, some of them in partisan settings, saying, in essence, we are not partisan hacks. That tells me that they are very concerned about their legitimacy. We know the chief justice is very concerned about the institutional credibility of the court. The court, as it's famously said, does not have an army to uh, enforce its rulings. It relies on other branches and the public's recognition that they are the final word and that they are operating as judges, not simply as political hacks, political uh, circuits for whatever party um, whose president nominated them. It is very uh, interesting that as this is going on, we have this quiet little uh, committee that President Biden has organized uh, looking at reforms of the court. I would be surprised if they came back with anything that looks like court packing that is adding to justices. But there has been a lot of buzz, frankly, on both sides of the aisle at some time uh, at different points um, as to whether we should impose term limits on the justices on the Supreme Court. And I think the more they are seen as partisan surrogates for the president who appointed them, the greater danger that Congress might go along with um, something like that. Uh, And I think um, you see a Supreme Court that is no longer under the control of Chief Justice Roberts. He was in the minority in that Texas case. He is pulling back on the reins as the rest of them um, go off the uh, the deep end, as it were, on the right side of the court. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see whether in the, all the cases that Ruth uh, enumerated, whether the justices move incrementally or whether they're going to swing for the fences and simply uh, further an ideological agenda, which many of suspect um, they operate under rather than simply a neutral uh, rule of law.
1: Uh, Ruth, as Jen mentioned, there was a development this week in that Texas abortion case. Um, can you see yet uh, where uh, that's headed and whether the Supreme Court will eventually uh, be asked to rule again?
0: Uh, yes, is the quickie answer. Um, this was a ruling by the same judge who had been blocked from continuing with the private Um, effort to block the Texas abortion law. This was a case, um, very interesting case, brought by the Justice Department under Attorney General Merrick Garland, who argued that the rights of the United States um, were implicated and that the United States had the authority to go to court to vindicate the rights of women in Texas whose constitutional rights were being violated by the Texas law. The judge uh, in the case, Uh, agreed with the Justice Department's argument, but this is going to rock it up, it already has, to the appeals court, which is, I think, almost certainly going to take a more negative view of the United States argument, and right back up to the Supreme Court. And so um, everybody just better buckle up on this one.
1: Uh, All right, so let's move over to the court and talk about Jen's new book, which is titled Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. Congrats on the book, Jen. Uh, We excerpted it in the post, uh, but tell us uh, for those uh, folks who haven't read it, how did women save democracy from Donald Trump?
3: Well, I think maybe we should add a little coda to that so far because the battle goes on. (laughs) Um, The thesis of the book, um, which turned out to be um, have a lot of support as I began researching it, is that women um, in all strata, whether they were private citizens, whether they were uh, people who hadn't considered running for office, whether they were presidential candidates, um, really were tremendously motivated by the election of Donald Trump. Um, They were negatively motivated, that is, um, because they really felt that democracy and the place of women in our society was under siege. So in record numbers, they organized, they protested, they ran for office. Um, we saw in 2018 that women Democrats uh, running for office helped swing the House in, the, in favor of the Democrats. Uh, and of course we saw in 2020, uh, a group of women uh, this time running for president. And although uh, none of them made it to the top spot, we do have now Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. So I look at why these women did what they did. I look at um, the ability of many women to self-organize women who had never been politically uh, active and um, look at the ways in which women self-organize and the issues that matter to women and why they vote the way they did. Um, It turned out to me, for me, to be very inspirational as I learned the stories of many women who are not household names, who simply got up off the couch and went out to as I said, save
1: democracy. There's been a gender gap in every presidential election for almost 50 years. Um, Was it uh, greater uh, in 2020? Uh, and, and, And what does it tell us about the future of the parties?
3: Well, there is, I have to put a caveat whenever we talk about um, the results, there were actually two sets of polls. One was not to get too much in the weeds, but there were traditional exit polls. There was also an enormous what they call a vote cast uh, survey that was done before. So the numbers don't match up between these two surveys. But what we can say is at least from the exit polls, it was the greatest gender gap in history. Um, Biden won 57% of the women's vote. Um, And uh, that was a um, a, a record, 45% of the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yes, 57 to 45. So it was a 12-point gender gap, which was a record uh, for uh, presidential elections. Um, It wasn't across the board, however, and it's very important, I learned, um, to talk about which kinds of women. Um, Trump won still very heavily among white, non-college-educated women. Biden, however, did better than Hillary Clinton among white college educated women. He also did exceptionally well with suburban women, with Latino women, with independent women. So it was not a consistent pattern. Uh, And I think some of the reasons um, we're seeing continue to play out that religion, geography, education also play a tremendously important role in how people cast their votes. So overall, I think the Democrats are becoming more dependent upon the women's vote. And I think they're Policies reflect that. We're now having this big fight over the reconciliation package. Um, much of that agenda uh, was frankly written by a woman, near a Tanden, um, who at the time was head of a think tank, later nominated for uh, the Office of Management and Budget, rejected because her emails were too spicy. Um, and that agenda, almost hook, line and sinker, was adopted by Biden. He ran on it. And it's now the focus of his, uh, really his domestic agenda. Those issues are really aimed at women, childcare, universal pre-K, family leave. Um, and the reason is, is that that is the uh, main constituency um, for Democrats. Um, and in particular, um, they're going to have to reconcile the tremendous support they receive from African-American women with their position on civil rights and on uh, voting rights. So I think it is becoming um, a more female-oriented policy, Um, but there's a long way to go. Um, We think women have made a lot of progress, they have, but only 25% or so of the House uh, is made up of women. Uh, So it's a process, it's a work in progress.
1: Ruth, uh, uh, the Republicans had pretty good success in 2020 in electing women after having not many uh, in the House. Uh, does that suggest to you that maybe they're realizing they need to step up uh, their game in terms of female representation? And I did notice, and Jen sort of hinted, that Trump's Trump's own support among women rose four or five points between 16 and 20.
0: That's very interesting. I think Republicans have recognized their deficits, as it were, with women, with minorities for years. The question is whether they're capable of willing to... Uh, promote the kinds of policies that will help narrow uh, the gender gap that they face. And on on that front, if you don't mind me asking a question, Mike, I'm curious from Jennifer what she thinks the potential political fallout from this abortion case might be, whether the court explicitly or implicitly does away with the constitutional right to choose whether to have an abortion or not.
3: I think it could be tremendously influential um, with women. It's not simply that this is a bill that would really uh, obliterate virtually all abortions because um, the 85% 85% of women um, do not know they're pregnant at that stage and 85% of uh, abortions uh, take place after the six week mark. But it's um, a bill that's designed to offer a bounty to uh, for people to spy on women, for women to be turned in for seeking an abortion. It's really um, a rather diabolical scheme. And I think you saw a revulsion uh, really across the board and the telltale sign was you saw a lot of Republicans who didn't want to talk about this. Um, they are not thrilled uh, Um, at least with the way this bill is crafted. And I think if the court makes a giant um, leap, in other words, really kind of reversing Roe, um, or um, in any way, um, pushing back um, uh, abortion bans to pre-viability, you're going to see a tremendous political backlash. Um, I talk about in the book that as soon as Kavanaugh got on the court, you saw these abortion bans pop up in many states in the South. And that became fuel for the fire of women who were opposed to to Trump. Um, And I think um, it's um, a truism that uh, you don't realize um, how valuable certain rights are until they're taken away. And I think this is potentially very explosive for the Republican Party. And uh, I'm very curious to see, uh, very concerned to see how far the justices are willing to go.
1: John, Ruth, in 15 seconds, that's all we have left. Since you are a court watcher, are the justices conscious of this as well? Very Super quickly.
0: conscious. They know, um, they worry about it, whether that will restrain them, TBD.
1: Right. All right. Thank you both, Jen. Ruben, Ruth, Marcus, thank you both for joining us this morning. Thanks to everyone watching. To check out what interviews we have coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more. Thank you very much, and have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.